season two of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Ken F. was recorded on April 27th, 2023. Okay, well, hello, everybody. Good evening. Good morning. I know this is a global platform, so wherever you may be, I hope you're having a wonderful day or evening. I am Ken, and I like roller coasters. I like Home Depot. I like kayaking. I like camping under the stars, and I love sharing these with the people I love. And it's so cool tonight because as I I look out there, I see a whole bunch of people who I have shared these experiences with. So recovery is not just about opening up the big book, uh, big red book. It's about putting your life in action and enjoying it with other people. So I just want to say how excited I am to see some of those people here with me today. And yes, I am Ken, and I am a grateful recovering adult child. And the word that I like to use to describe the first 30 plus something years of my life uh, is oppressed. Um, That seems like if I would just narrow everything down to one word, in all the different areas of my life, I felt like the underdog and oppressed. And I do not feel that way today. Today, I have a long term career as a California licensed psychotherapist. I am an author. I have two YouTube channels, and I recently sat on the board of an international nonprofit for five years. I have worked really, really hard to create my sense of home and my family. And this is this is my journey. I've traveled from hurting to healing to helping, and not necessarily all in that even flow, but let me give you a taste a little bit about my my story. Um, My my healing has come in different stages of my life. Uh, As far as ACA goes, ACA is just more the latest chapter in my healing. I've been lucky in that I've had some healing prior to coming in to this program. it happened gradually, it didn't happen overnight. And then this last chapter just kind of was like the icing on the cake with everything. Um, and I realized that there are a lot of people out there that are still still hurting. And this is kind of where I hope that my story reaches them to know that I've been in pain and I know what it feels like to feel hopeless, despair, and extremely oppressed. Uh, me start by talking a little bit about the isolation that I grew up with. And um, in ACA, we say that we we risk, um, um, where did I put that? I have the quote here somewhere. Uh, the helping begin, the healing begins when we risk moving out of isolation. It's part of the problem. The healing begins when we risk moving out of isolation. And my isolation was just huge. I was the last child born in my family. Um, 
only child to my father. My mother was married once before. And I really believe that the dynamics between my parents had a big deal with that because my mother in 1960 found herself a single parent and my father was available at the time. And I think she scooped him up as kind of a good, a good deal. I've never really noticed any love between my parents the entire time that I was growing up. And uh, my parents are actually quite, quite famous. And there's uh, a TV show on uh, based on them. And this is the TV show. And these are my mother and father. Uh, you probably know them as Edith and Archie Bunker. And my mother was kind of the placator. She wanted the the family to, to everything to flow smoothly and wanted everyone to be happy. And, you know, which meant making sure my dad was happy because he was the head of the table. He was like Archie. He got to be fed first. Um, you know, there was just this, this sense of entitlement of my father who really wasn't a loving or nurturing person. And I, I, I didn't witness him being loving towards my, my sister or my mother either. Um, and I know that part of our isolation, you know, went on for years and years and years and years. And as an adult, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to ask him one time, you know, like, what happened? What did I do that was so horrible to make you reject me and hate me so much? And he knew the exact time and date and everything that happened. And he said, you know, we were wrestling one time and I was tickling you. And, you know, you wanted me to stop and I was still tickling you and you got mad and you said, I hate you. And at that moment, we were done. So I was like four years old. And my dad, as a parent, didn't realize that I hate you as a little kid for I'm angry. Okay, He couldn't speak the language. And instead, that cost him our relationship, unfortunately. So from then on, I grew up with this person who was very detached, very unloving, um, not a lot of violence. There was some violence, but there was always the threat of violence. And that was the whole thing with my mother, you know, wait till your father gets home. There was always this manipulation. Uh, and being the youngest kid in the family, there weren't, there weren't any other kids that followed me, not even cousins. I was like the end of the line. So I didn't grow up with babies around me. And I grew up very sheltered. So I really didn't know how to socialize with other kids. The, the only person that I really ever saw was my sister and her friends when they came over. And they always played with dolls. And I wanted to fit in. So I wanted to play with dolls. They were getting into makeup. I wanted to get into makeup. That's all I knew. That was my role modeling. And that was um, basically how I was starting to form my identity, just by, you know, learning through example. Uh, but my sister and I were not close. And my sister was very abusive towards me. So this was kind of the catch-22, where instead of me not trusting, I didn't get the memo on the don't don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, by the way. I did not get that memo. I was Charlie Brown, who every time Lucy held the, the kite out and said, this time it's going to be okay. I was the Charlie Brown that every time trusted my sister and every time she pulled that, that football out from underneath me. And uh, one of the favorite lines that I remember her saying when I was a kid is if she was mad at me, she would say something like, well, I was going to play with you or I was going to take a board game out and spend some time with you. But since you've irritated me, uh, I'm not going to do it now. And, you know, deep down, I knew that she had no intention of ever doing that, but just how mean it was for her to always kind of just keep putting these digs inside of me. 
She was four years older, by the way, and I was held back a grade, which made the split between us that much bigger. Um, also, hero child, straight A student, did everything right. Um, you know, dealt with the family dysfunction in her own way later on. That was much different. Uh, and, and not really socializing around many kids, I really felt awkward around other kids. And then one of the most traumatic things for me growing up was I was held back a grade. I was in a first grade class that was mostly second graders, and the teacher didn't give the first graders much attention. And I think uh, out of the eight of us, I think like six of us were held back. And I remember just begging my parents, just please, please, I want to move on with everybody else. I don't want to be different. I don't want to be separated. I don't, I don't want to be left behind. And my parents basically said, you don't have, have a say in this. You know, you've got to basically spend a whole other year of your life, which when you're that young is everything, you know, being around a group of kids that are younger than you. And I felt very, very awkward. Never really knew how to fit in and had have friends. Um, I had friends that were girls. I had friends that were guys. Um, you know, the, the whole thing was, as I started to get older, I, I, I moved away from wanting to play with dolls, wanting to wear makeup and stuff like that. The big thing was like Hot Wheels and and uh, mice and having habit trails where I could have mice that would be like in these houses with tubes connecting all the way around my bedroom and stuff like that. And um, But it was still a really lonely time because I didn't really belong to a group of friends. I might have one neighbor friend that we'd be friends for a few months, but then like as soon as they got tired of me, I would recycle to another friend. And then after I recycled through everybody, like a year later, I'd be back going through the same line over again. I never felt like I belonged to a group. My mother had me in uh, Little League, which was just terrifying for me because my dad never showed me how to throw a softball. I never knew anything. I didn't know how to catch. I had really bad eye-hand coordination. So that was a nightmare. And then, you know, when mom's the only one that shows up for the game, that also feels really abandoned and, and not supportive. Um, same thing with Cub Scouts. I felt very, very detached from Cub Scouts. And I remember we had to do a Height building contest one time, and it was a father something. And I remember my father being all excited about it because he was going to build the kite, and you know basically took that away from me. And there's a lot of stuff he took away from me growing up that were things that were challenges for me to accomplish that 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 he ended up taking. Um, one of them would be like my dad was a really good fix it uh, person. He had all the power tools and everything, but he raised me to believe that. I would lose a finger, I would lose my eye, that the power tools are dangerous, that I was not allowed to touch them. So while my dad had these wonderful skills, I learned none of them from him. And I just learned to be afraid of all these power tools. Uh, I wasn't allowed to get my play clothes dirty because that was another thing that my mother was really big on was appearances. And, you know, if I get you these play clothes, you have to, you know, wear them until they, they wear out or you grow out of them, but you can't get them dirty. And there was a channel in back of a neighbor's house. Uh, we called it the ditch. It was basically a creek, but in the city, it's kind of been enclosed a little bit. We would go down there and we'd catch bullfrogs and make dams and, you know, actually like go through the drainage, the storage drains. There's one that went under the local college about half a mile and we'd go under there with flashlights. And when we got out of there, we'd check each other's backs to make sure there weren't any black widows on us. And if there were, we would scrape them off. Um, but I'd get in trouble for that. So this was something that wasn't a norm for me. 
And what was my norm was sitting in a rocking chair. My parents wanted me to go out and play, but then they wouldn't let me go anywhere because they didn't want me going in the ditch. They didn't want me riding my bike away from the street. They didn't want me getting in trouble. So while they wanted me to go out, they wanted me to stay home. So I ended up sitting in a rocking chair for many, many years, just listening to records over and over and over again. And I would withdraw into myself. I know a lot of other speakers have talked about dissociation, and I think that's really what I was doing. I created a whole fantasy world inside my head. At one point, I designed a whole amusement park that would rival Disneyland. And I got a sketchbook and I started putting everything in there. And I still have it to this day um, because I longed to go to these places. I longed to go to Disneyland. I longed to go to Magic Mountain. But these were just places I heard about and never went to. So in my own head, I withdrew and I created my own fantasy world. And in my family, the most of the violence happened over the dinner table. Uh, my dad would have um, too much to drink. And for my dad, my dad was two to three martinis, but that was enough to throw him over the edge. And if he was drinking, we had a signal in the house where we would do this. It's meant dad's drinking, don't say anything. Well, like I said, I didn't get the, the don't, don't talk, don't feel, don't trust memo. And sure enough, I would always open my mouth at the dinner table. And, you know, my dad would say something like something stupid, like the sky is purple. And I would say, no, the sky's not purple, dad. Why would you say that? And then my dad would feel so angry that I challenged him that he would take his fist and he'd slam it down on the table and the silverware would go flying in the air and everybody's stomach just cringed immediately. And uh, this is kind of like the beginning of my, my sister's anorexia and she just wasn't able to eat because of the tension there at the table. Um, I was really skinny and starving and my mother, you know, I don't think she would feed me enough. She was always afraid that snacks would ruin my appetite. So as she's making dinner and I have these horrible stomach pains, I'd be pleading, pleading, please give me some food. And she'd give me a little matzah and say, here, take this. I don't want to spoil your appetite. And, you know, with my sister not eating anything off of her plate, it was a win-win for me because all of a sudden, as hungry as I was and as skinny as I was, I started mooching off of her plate. She wasn't going to eat it and she was glad to give it to me. Uh, with my dad, like I said, I couldn't defend myself. He never taught me how to defend myself. Uh, there was some abuse. He, you know, pinned me against a wall one time because, um, because I said something he disagreed with. And another time he threw me into the television and got down on top of me and started beating me. Uh, that time was kind of special because we had a basset hound and the basset hound was my dad's that was my dad's favorite child in the house was the Basset Hound. And when the dog died, my dad even got a headstone that said, dad's good boy and companion. And when my dad was beating me, the dog lunged at him. So I felt kind of protected. But other than that, I really wasn't able to protect myself and um, just didn't feel the love. It was always the, the rejection uh, or the, the threat. If you don't get good grades, we're sending you to military academy if um you know if if you don't do all your chores or do things perfectly you know we're sending you to military academy where no one will love you and you'll be locked in a room and you know kind of like if you ever saw the movie oliver and the orphanage it was painted as, as something like that so i always had that over my head that if i wasn't perfect i would be shipped to that and as i got older i started to realize that my dad just wasn't 
100% there, that there had to be something crazy to my dad, and that it wasn't me. I knew there was a lot wrong with me because I, I, I heard my mother complaining about other people's kids, that kid's hyperactive, that kid talks too much, that kid this, that kid that. And I know they kind of said the same things about me. And I always often wondered what exactly they were saying about me when I wasn't around or what the other parents were saying about me as well. Um, so one of the things that my dad said when I was probably 10, 12 years old that uh, that made sense to me that, that it wasn't me is my dad said, uh, made a comment, what did I do to deserve such a bastard child son? I should have only had basset hounds. And that made me realize that, you know, there's something wrong with my dad if, 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 if that's what he's saying. So it was kind of an enlightening moment that, you know, that wasn't really me in, in terms of that. Um, with all of this, I kept like asking myself, why me? You know, why, why can't I throw a football? Why, why can't I catch a baseball? Uh, why do I have to wear glasses? Why did I have braces for three freaking years when everyone else had them for like one year? Um, why did I get stuck with such crappy parents? Um, or at least a crappy father. My mother, I thought, kind of walked on water. I really didn't have any issues with my mother. It was my my father the whole time that that really bothered me. And there was one day, um, let me back up a second. So, so there was one family in the neighborhood that, that stands out for me that um, they seemed like the perfect family. They had four perfect kids. Uh, the mom and dad were on the PTA and uh, the dad did Indian guides with my friend, Mike. Mike was my age and they went camping every now and then. And I remember they were doing a camping trip when I was about in fifth grade. And believe me, that's something my parents would never do. My father's saying was, it's not a vacation if kids are involved. Meaning if there was a vacation, I stayed home with my grandma and my mom and dad went away. So they never, ever wanted to do anything like camping. That was just not who they were. I jumped at the chance. I jumped at the chance to get out of the house. And I loved it. The next year, there was a summer school class that was camping. You learned how to sew your own backpack and pack your own stuff. And then they took you camping. So any opportunity I could get to get out of the house, I started doing that. And this friend of mine with the perfect family, turns out the family wasn't so perfect. Mom and dad divorced. And he became a latchkey kid. And one day we were going to ride our bicycles over to Knott's Berry Farm, which was about four miles away. It's, it's an amusement park, love roller coasters. They had just built like the first looping coaster. And I just wanted to peek through the fence and see it. I knew riding it was like out of the question, but I just wanted to peek through the fence and see it. So I begged my dad if I could ride my bike there. My dad at the time was home. He had kidney disease and he was now on disability and on dialysis. So I was about 12 years old and I asked him if I could you know, ride over with my friend Mike and he said, sure, just make sure you look both ways before you cross the street. So we did it and, you know, didn't get hit, had a wonderful time. It wasn't that far. It came back. Next week, I wanted to do it again. And Mike said, you know, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. So I did it by myself. And at that point, this was like another step of mine in risking getting out of isolation. My bike was my first ticket out of the isolation. 
And at that time, I started going to a church, and they had a high school, college age trip um, up the coast from Santa Barbara back here. And I begged to do that. And I was a skinny little seventh grader at the time. And they said, you know, these are the big kids. And I pleaded with them. I said, I can do this. I can do this. And they let me do it. I felt really awkward with the older kids. I had a real hard time, you know, trying to fit in. But when I was on the bicycle, I felt freedom. And one of the last days I got lost from the main group, and this is like way before cell phones or texting or anything like that. And I'm lost from the group and I'm on the verge of crying because I'm in Ventura. I'm like a hundred miles away from home. I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I was certain that I was gonna try to find my way back to these people because we didn't have maps either. We, the leader had a map and that was it. Well, I saw a couple of kids on the hill on bicycles and recognized them. And I thought the bike trail must be up that hill. So to get up the hill, I had to cross railroad tracks. And to get to the railroad tracks, I had to bring my bike through barbed wire. And my parents got me for my birthday, a brand new 10 speed for this trip. And I remember it had really shiny forks and going through that barbed wire, I scratched the forks. But it never bothered me because as soon as I got on the trail, I found the main group and all of a sudden I was fine. So that scratch on that bicycle became my trophy of courage that I held on to for years and years and years. So like I said, I, I did get the don't talk, don't feel, don't trust rule. Uh, I talked a lot, and when I was told to shut up, that only made me want to talk more because I felt I have to talk fast and get out what I need to say before I'm told to shut up. So that actually made me a lot more anxious and a lot more talkative. Uh, feelings, I was always afraid of doing the wrong thing, and if you looked at me wrong, I was crushed, I was devastated. I would have a huge panic attack and not be able to stop crying. Uh, I remember being called into the principal's office a couple times in school and sitting there and the principal couldn't even have a conversation with me because I couldn't form words. I was just a blubbering thing. And I had no idea what was wrong or what I did wrong. Just that's just how much anxiety I had and always feeling that things were my fault and that I was in trouble and that I was going to be shipped away to military academy where I was going to be put in solitary confinement. And then the don't trust thing. Um, I was always told to respect your elders and that you needed to be a good kid and do as you're told. So to me, I didn't get the don't trust rule because I was told to trust and do as I was told. So I became over-trusting. And I think this is why I let my sister kind of pull the, the, the football out for me over and over again, um, the over-trusting over thing. And the next step out of my, uh, my isolation was riding my bicycle to a school on a Saturday to take the high school proficiency examination to get out of high school a year early. This was my way of getting my power back from being held back a grade. And that's what I did. I passed the test and I went directly into college. So this was my way of feeling empowered, like you held me back and I am catching up. Unfortunately, it took me seven and a half years to get my two-year degree, but that's a whole other story. 
Um, in, in that time, I really want to be an actor. And I think a lot of adult children are very creative and they want something like this because I just wanted to be able to portray everyone else in the world, especially people who are happy because I did not like who I was and wanted to be able to portray roles of other people. And this is what I pers uh, pursued in college. However, I would go to an audition and there would be 150 other guys there that looked exactly like me. And I realized how competitive this is. And the one thing I really wanted in my life was stability. So I was starting to question myself about that time. And I had an acquaintance from Chicago who I'd met when he was out here uh, visiting who knew that I had done the bike trip and I was doing bike riding. And he said, hey, let's ride our bikes to Chicago. And I said, mm, let's ride our bikes to Boston if we're going to do that. So a lot more to the story than that. But basically, that was my next lesson out of isolation. And I ended up doing it in, in two trips. And on the second trip, I ended up in the Pennsylvania Dutch community and met three, actually four wonderful families within that community. And I stayed in contact with them. And, you know, eight years later, when I got my master's degree, I decided to get in touch with my roots and do a fourth trip across the country. And the beginning of the trip was supposed to be with a friend. And after a week, he bailed out. And in the past, I would have felt so depressed, so abandoned. You know, once again, somebody else is leaving me. But I had gotten out of grad school at the time. I'd had a lot of therapy up to grad school. And I was able to realize, you know, what? I was going to do this trip without him. He came along. Great. He left because of his own accord. Started to hear that. But I'm not going to let it affect my trip. And the day he left, I kept waiting for depression to hit me. And it didn't. I was waiting for it, but it didn't. And that kind of let me know that I had already, you know, taken a step in the healing process. But the next couple of weeks uh, were a little boring. And that part of the country is not the most uh, exciting. So I started pushing 100 miles a day to get myself to Virginia sooner so I would have more time to hang out with these families ended up spending about a month with them and in hanging out with them they really taught me more about what a sense of community is they showed me what it's like for me to be valued they became like my loving parent and they showed me what community was about so in 94 when I came back from that trip I had kind of a clear idea of what I wanted for myself uh, that I needed to create for myself in, in California because I wasn't going to find it here unless I created it for myself. Uh, I did come into ACA prior to that. Back when I was in college in about 1988, my sister had gotten very involved in ACA. And she said, dad's an alcoholic, you're in denial, you need to come to ACA. And I said, what are you talking about? Dad's an alcoholic. You know, dad drinks. We know he drinks. He's a problem drinker, but he's not an alcoholic. He doesn't live on Skid Row. He doesn't drink out of a paper bottle. He's never been to jail. You know, our family was normal. What, you know, I, and I think that was part of my pain was we had a normal family. Why was I so messed up? Um, so I listened to my sister and I felt if I was going to be tormented through an ACA meeting, I grabbed one of my friends who I knew had a worse family than I did and said, you need to come with me. And we walked into a room. And it was a lot of very, very hurting people sitting there holding teddy bears. And when people shared, all they would do is just cry. There was no 
steps. There was no recovery. There was nothing. There was just catharsis without end. And my friend and I kind of freaked out, and we didn't go back for many, many years. And, you know, I thought my life was going well. Uh, you know, after that, like I said, I, I you know, did, did more bike rides, graduated from school, started a family, you know, got my, my uh, master's degree and then my license, working on my career. Things were going really good. And uh, looking back, like doing the steps, I realized that what I was doing a lot of was convention. Um, something uh, that was modeled to me and my family. My mother's hypercritical of everybody. And, um, you know, whether somebody dresses wrong or they look wrong or they wear the wrong makeup or why are they driving a car, there's always some sense of criticism. And I know that when I would be like with other people and I would have some problems in my life and I'd be talking about, you know, this person bugs me or this person, you know, I wish they'd show up on time or whatever, you know, the response I always got was, you know, why are you complaining about this person? Why don't you just walk away? I couldn't understand that. Like, I'm not complaining. What are you talking about? I'm not complaining. This is just what my family does. And it wasn't until I started working the steps that I really could see that behavior and um, fix it. So the whole thing with ACA is I came into ACA again, uh, ACA 2.0, as I like to call it, because it was after the Red Book. I came in because I had been working in a hospital at this point in time and had heard good things about ACA and was referring a lot of my patients to ACA. And one of them came back and said, you know, there's going to be a convention and I'm on the committee and I would like you to come down and speak. And I was very honored for that invitation, but I wanted to know who I was going to speak to. So I walked into a meeting here in Los Angeles, and the person that was the uh, secretary of the, the meeting, who led the meeting time, this dynamic personality that just made me feel so welcome. He was like the most amazing role model for me. Um, and I continued to go and I found another meeting kind of uh, in the other direction from my house that met at the same time. So I started alternating back and forth between the two of them. And the whole point was just to be able to, to know who I was speaking to, know my audience. But after going for a week, I noticed my life was changing. I wasn't doing this kvetching any longer. If I was upset with somebody, I either dealt with it or I let it go. I was, for some reason, becoming more at peace with myself. I was using more coping tools. And I thought there's got to be something to this. I'm going to keep going. So one day I asked this guy who was the um, secretary if he'd be my sponsor. And before he could answer, there was a woman sitting next to him. And she looked very dark, very much like Morticia Adams, very skinny, very tattooed. And just she just didn't seem to glow with happiness, at least through my eyes. And she said to me before he could answer, I'll be your sponsor. In fact, uh, you don't really even need me to be your sponsor. You can do all the steps through the workbook. And then when you're ready for step five, give me a call and let me know. And, you know, I've, I've worked in recovery a long time. So I've had a whole head full of recovery indirectly from working with people and you know unofficially for many years those people were like my sponsors because i i 
I learned so much about life and recovery and loss and grief and all this stuff from them that I knew that, you know, guys get guys as sponsors. So for her to, to jump in there and do this um, felt really uncomfortable. And uh, I, for me, it worked out well that I didn't take her on as my sponsor because she took her own life a couple months later. So I went back to the original guy and said, will you be my sponsor? And he said, yes. So I felt really, really fortunate to have somebody to be you know, not only a sponsor, but just such a good role model in my life. And as far as like, you know, coming out of denial, you know, like I said, I always knew my dad was an addict and coming into ACA and looking at the steps made me realize all the other layers of dysfunction in my family. My dad's drinking was only one layer of the whole shit show that was going on. When my dad uh, left work because of his kidney disease, he had a kidney transplant and was on anti-rejection medicine, and you couldn't sneeze around him. He thought he was going to die. If you sneezed, um, you know, it was like the end of the world. We were not allowed to have anybody over at the house. It was like we were on quarantine all the time. Um, I you know, could see that my mother had secondary gain from everything that my father was going through. There were a lot of strange dynamics in the family with my my mother and her mother. And, you know, my, my father would get drunk every time my mother would go to visit my grandmother. And my mother would just say, well, that stuff, you know, I need to get away from your dad for a while. So you deal with him. So, uh, you know, my sister's, uh, you know, anorexia, they're all and, and her subsequent drug use, all of this stuff you know, came to light when I started working the steps. It's like, wow, it's not just this one thing that made my family a mess. It's all this other shit piled on top of shit, piled on top of shit. And um, so I think for me, that was really coming out of the denial and seeing my family a lot clearer. And then also seeing all the other families that I grew up with and thinking, oh yeah, they had problems, but they got along well, realizing that they weren't getting along that well either, that we're all kind of in this boat together. Um, the spirituality thing, you know, that I had wired I, I, for, for me, writing my bicycle cross country three times, uh, I, I could not do that without having a higher power to guide me and protect me. So I had a pretty close relationship with my higher power, uh, going into the steps, um, working, uh, towards the resentments. I realized that, you know, as far as bosses and relationships and, you know, mean girls in high school and stuff that it really only came down to. Four, really, uh, four resentments. And the four resentments that I really have, my core resentments are, first, my dad, my aunt, who was uh, probably undiagnosed bipolar, borderline personality, and my sister with the same diagnosis. Um, those were the three people that seemed to really take the wind out of my sails, put me down, take my self-esteem away. Um, let me know that no matter what, I could never amount to anything. And it was just criticism, criticism, criticism. Ten minutes, Ken. Thank you. The fourth person was my mother. And I didn't realize this because I thought my mother was the protector. And then I realized when I was in college and I was having all these violent nightmares that my mother would come to visit me. And as soon as I opened the door and she was there, I would start screaming at her, you know, what are you doing here? Get away, get away. But I realized that my mother, I have a resentment against her because she wasn't the one to protect me from these other three people. So in a way, 
the one that I thought was, you know, the loving mother is really the one that was my, my, my biggest um, resentment. So really working on, on letting go of those resentments. And the cool thing is by letting go of those resentments, other, other petty things that come up now, they don't matter. Even if like I get mad at one of my bosses or something, I can stop myself and say, where does this come to? Is, does this really come back to my, my mom, my sister, my dad, or my aunt? And when I can figure the, the feeling and how that feeling fits, then I can let it go. I realize that's not my mom, my sister, my aunt, or my dad. Um, you know, seeing seeing the world through um, through ACA lenses has really helped me to be a better judge of other people's character. Um, I can see when other people are are reacting out of their rebellious teenager or their critical parent, and I don't need to take the hook and bite into that game now that I'm taking care of myself and becoming my own loving parent. Um, you know, working on my character defects and um, laundry list survival skills, I think is still an ongoing basis. They don't crop up very often. I used to love stirring the pot and, you know, keeping the fire burning, and I don't need to do that now. I like excitement in my life, but I can get excitement from going for a bike ride or going camping or something, doing something new. It doesn't have to be, you know, creating drama in a relationship or, um, you know, work or somewhere like that. Um, I don't know if anybody here has heard Tian Dayton. She has a, a, a saying called shadow boxing with ghosts in the room. And I think that's what this really has come down to for me. I can realize that all the time that I was having resentments and arguing with people that I was really arguing with people that weren't in the room. And I can see that now through working the steps and um, doing this on a constant basis. Um, laundry list traits, like I said, are fading away. Uh, I, I, I do well with criticism. Uh, being that I, you know, am an author and I've got some stuff out on YouTube, I put myself out there for criticism. And sometimes I hear things that are not nice and uh, I don't like hearing them, but I'm okay with that. I realize that that's the risk I, I have for putting myself out there. And if I want to stay in isolation, then I won't risk anything. And I think the risk is worth it. And I think I know who I am enough now that if somebody doesn't agree with me, that's okay. Not everybody has to like me. Not everybody has to agree with me. And I'm not out there to make everybody like me, agree with me. Um, you know, there's something for everybody. And if I'm not for you, that's okay. And that's where I am today. Um, worked really hard to make my laundry list uh, obsolete. Uh, recently, I've been taking care of myself. Uh, the, the home group that I was going to was kind of getting stale for me. I felt like I had outgrown a lot of the recovery and started going to a different group um, up north of me and really loving the people there and the energy in that group and started working on building fellowship there. So some of those people now I consider kind of my extended family. Uh, over the last month, we've been few of us have been going kayaking together every weekend. And last weekend, with a whole bunch of friends, I went on an annual kayaking trip, and one of my new friends was able to go with us. So to me, that's kind of the reward of all this: is I'm at a place where I'm living in serenity, 
And one of the topics in the meeting a couple of weeks ago was the 12th step. And as they were reading out of the, the, the red book, I'm listening to that. And I'm thinking, that's where I am today. That's where I am today. Definitely not where I started out, but that is where I am today. And it's such a relief to hear that and, and know. And I still have struggles. I have stressors. I have life stressors, but these are adult things. And my inner adult, my inner loving parent can step up to the plate and get me through them because, you know, life's always going to have some stresses. Just because you get in recovery and you work the steps doesn't mean that all your stress goes away. But serenity, or what they call in ACA emotional recovery, is there for me. And my own definition of emotional recovery is not getting butt hurt over stupid shit. And oftentimes when I start to feel triggered, I stop and ask myself, is this really something to be triggered over or is this stupid? And do I need to, you know, flood myself with cortisol? Do I need to upset myself? Or do I need to basically just realize this is just a bump in the road, deal with it and move on? I love myself in the process. I've been teaching the Loving Parent Guidebook at work almost on a daily basis for the last year. And it's so cool for me because I get to remind myself of it on a daily basis. I get to practice this on a daily basis. And in doing so, my loving, nurturing parent is waking up and getting louder and louder. And I am loving it. Um, I really think it's important to move out of isolation. And I know we're all in different stages of our recovery. I know on Zoom, I hear a lot of negativity at work from people not wanting to go on Zoom because they say, I'm looking at a screen with people that have their, their cameras off. And I know that's another form of isolation. And we've all isolated for so long. I would encourage people who are at that place to take a risk and you know find your voice, find your face, and put yourself out there. Um, I really appreciate the in-person meetings, which is why I am loving the fellowship group out of my Pasadena meeting right now and all the fun things that we're doing together because it's not just program, it's people. And I'm enjoying the people that I'm growing with and they're growing with me too. Uh, and I guess for me, uh, from spending my childhood always saying, why me, why me, why me? I've gotten to a place in my life where I look back and I say, I know why. I had to have that pain. I had to have those things happen to me in order for me to grow to be this wonderful person who I love and I'm very grateful for today. There's no more why me's for me. And I have my own version of the solution, which is just kind of condensed. And I'm going to kind of wrap it up with that. And I'll put it in the chat afterwards if you'd like to have it. And my solution is, the solution is to become my own loving parent. I work a spiritual program based on action coming from love. The healing began when I risked moving out of isolation. I learned to keep the focus on myself in the here and now. I take responsibility for my own life, and I supply my own parenting with gentleness, humor, love, and respect. The topic that I would like to have today, if you would like to use the topic or if you'd like to just talk about what you need to talk about, but the topic that I have chosen is um, what steps have you recently made to help move out of your isolation? And I ask that because this is a program of action coming from left. Anyway, I'm Ken. Thank you so much for letting me share today. <laughs>